0: I never get more upset when I come home after a weekend when we finish second.
1: Those are the words of a racer, David Richards. He's led teams to World Rally Championships, to Le Mans victories and to challenge for Formula One wins. 2004 was the year David, his BAR team and his driver Jensen Button came closest. 11 podiums and second in the Constructors' Championship but a win somehow eluded them. David's experiences of success, near misses and behind the scenes dealings in Formula One make him a fascinating person to listen to. Welcome everyone to F1 Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. There's another incredible thing about David. His experience of working with drivers, from Giancarlo Fisichella and Alex Wirtz in his Benetton Formula 1 days, to Jacques Villeneuve, Jensen and others at BAR, and of course Colin McRae and Sebastian Loeb in rallying.
0: There are three attributes you, you really need to be a great driver. If you mark each of those skill sets, one to ten, very few drivers get a 30.
1: We talk about what those attributes are, plus the drivers David thinks do get a full score, and you'll also hear about life as an F1 team principal, what happened when he tried to bring his own company ProDrive onto the Formula One grid, and his new ambitions to make motorsport more sustainable and inclusive. I hope you enjoy our conversation. David, it's lovely to see you again, and thank you for having me at home. Uh, We're in the English countryside near Banbury, near near Prodrive.
0: Yeah, not far away, just uh, about ten kilometres up
1: the road. You've been running Prodrive for what is it, nearly forty years now. But your Formula One associations came under different names. So first, let's talk about Benetton. God, it seems a long time ago now. It seems it? like
0: a lifetime ago.
1: That Look, does. What do you remember of of your year with that team? It was quite
0: an eye-opener to me. You know, I'd been in motorsport for quite a while at that time, so you thought, you know, it's just another, it's another motor racing team. It came about in a very strange set of circumstances. BAT, uh, we'd won the World Rally Championship for them on a couple of occasions by then, 96, 97, and um, they wanted to set up a Formula 1 team. So I, they asked me about setting up a Formula 1 team, what they should do and how they go about it, and I said, well, I'd actually look at the teams that have won Races and go and see if we could purchase one of the teams. They said, "Well, we're quite keen on starting again, having a new team." I said, "Well, I don't think it's a great idea." My, uh, I would sort of go and chat to a few people there, looked around, and the only team that I felt could be purchased at the time was Benetton. So I went down to see the family in Treviso, and. um, we had uh, very positive meetings and i came back and i said i think there's something to be done here but bat decided in their wisdom that they would start again and start afresh and that's another story altogether perhaps to talk about that later um and uh, and i came away and i thanked them very much and that was the end of that and about six months later i get a call from bernie eccleston he says david you remember the, the benetton family and you seem to get on very well with them and so they they remember you well and um they they think the sort of time has come where Flavio needs to move on and they would like uh, the younger son to sort of be mentored into the team I thought it would be quite a good thing for you to go down and do, what do you think? So I said okay, that sounds uh, an interesting idea, so back I went down to uh, Trevisio just uh, near Venice and met the family again and over a weekend we came to an arrangement where I was to uh, mentor younger son and sort of show him the ropes and have a a year or so was supposed to be longer than a year as it happens but um it was a it was an interesting year and a big lesson learned for me I went in there on my own and it was um it was very different from when I worked in a team of people around me that I knew intimately it was um a team that was you know built up around Michael Schumacher and had great success before it was a a team that sort of had lost some of its key people at that point in time and yet it was you know it was clearly great relationships inside the organization i was a, seen as the outsider quite frankly but it it taught me a lot that first that year by the end of the year it was clear to me that they needed an outside investor they needed a car company to join them and um uh, i had meetings with ford and i was recommending that they should partner with ford and uh, the board decided that's not the direction they wanted to take and uh, we parted at the end of that year.
1: Was Formula One an itch that you'd been wanting to scratch for a
0: while? I wouldn't say so. But, you know, if you're in motor racing and you haven't got Formula One on your CV somewhere, there's a bit missing.
1: Was it still Flavio's team in some way? Did you feel that when you you, you describe yourself as the outsider? Yeah, there
0: were, I always just did joke with them that everything was a secret. Everything was a secret in the place. The doors were closed. Um, I, used, I, I thought that the sort of in the... The staff canteen, the chef would lock away his menus and recipes every night because it was all, everything was a secret. And I seemed to be on the outside of the secrets at the time. It was, um, it's a funny experience, funny experience. Uh, one that I I learned a lot from. And when it came to that second opportunity in Formula One, I did things very differently.
1: Well, let, let's talk about uh, the Ford, the potential for a Ford deal at the end of that year. Because you were running Ford touring cars yeah, As we were. You're quite right? right. We were running the Ford Touring team. So you car had team. the relationship.
0: Yeah. And what, they were hungry. Well, it was the time when they were looking, I think it was just prior to them taking over with Jaguar or was it, I can't remember the timing with Jackie Stewart. And it was all around that time, just before they came in probably with Jackie and, uh, and Jack Nasser in, uh, he was the president of Ford at the time. And they were very keen to sort of get involved in some form, especially with engines and Cosworth had an engine facility. And it was all sort of all starting to line up. And, um, but the, the Benetton family had a good relationship with Renault. And um, I think for some reason, despite winning the world championship with Ford, with Schumacher, they, uh, they,
1: well, they wanted to stay with Renault. And Rocco Benetton was 29 at the time. You stepped aside. He took over. Was he ready Probably not, but that might be down
0: to my training. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, no, it's uh, it's not an easy task running a Formula One team. You've got to, you know, it's uh, it's multidisciplinary. You've got to understand the engineering side a little bit. You've got to have a great sort of uh, skills in in the sort of man management and got to be a leader at the end of the day. And um, it's quite hard when you're young to come into a role like that and, and assume that role very easily.
1: Well, let's fast forward to british american racing Uh, you touched on it a moment ago how disappointed were you that they didn't ask you to lead that team from the outset Uh, i was i was uh,
0: you know quite honestly but at the same time i'd already put my sort of you know i i told them very clearly that i didn't think starting a fresh a greenfield site was the right approach to take and it would take some time if you did it that way so yes it was uh, frustrating to see what was going on at the background there and and not to be able to have had a hand in it to sort it out at the beginning. Um, but of course, you know, two years down the line it all came round and Martin Broughton, who was the chairman at the time, came to me and said, Look, you know, what about you taking this on? What benefits
1: do you think they saw in a greenfield site?
0: Well they, they remember the Cigarette companies were very sort of, you know, we look back now, it seems like a, a lifetime ago that cigarette companies were dominant in in Formula One and across a lot of motor racing around the world. But they were, um, uh, they have a very clear sort of uh, brand positioning. They had a very clear identity that they want to do. And it was quite hard for them to adopt uh, a relationship with, you know, I remember the marketing mind saying to me, you know, do you honestly think I can sit comfortably alongside a woolly jumper company? And that was the story of the Benetons. And it was sort of they, they couldn't see that alliance working. And, you know, it was um, so they wanted a clean sheet of paper. They wanted to determine their own identity from the word go. And, of course, you know, those early years, the formative years of B.A.R. were quite exciting with the sort of dual liveries on the car. What did you make of that? I think it's a great idea. They were so innovative. the The guy run it. The guy, the marketing person behind it all, Jimmy Rambochesky, was a a superstar marketing guy. He was just creative. He pushed the boundaries all the time. And of course, they had. Quite frankly, they had the money to do it.
1: And what about Adrian Reynard's claim that he wanted to win his first Grand Prix? Yeah.
0: <laughs> what did you make Who of that? Ever makes that statement in any walk of life? You know, it's sort of it's uh, it's. Um, uh, you know, I love confidence in people. I love that sort of determination, but there are some things in life and formula one is probably the, the best example of it. You, you know, there are people there have been a lot longer than you have and, and are going to do a lot better job than you are for a long time.
1: Let's fast forward then to two years later. Funnily enough, I, I remember, I think doing Craig Pollock's last ever interview in December, 2001 at the factory. Little did I know that about three days after I'd done it, it was all change. How did that come about? Well, it was very clear
0: something had to change and it wasn't working. Martin Broughton was the chairman of um, uh, of BAT. I knew him fairly well from our rallying successes. And Jimmy Rampocheski was the marketing director. And uh, Martin called me up and said, look, you can obviously see our problems here. What would you be doing? And I said, well, give me the opportunity. and I'll, I'll go in and sort it out for you. It took a little while because going back to my previous experience, I said, look, I'm not going on my own to this. Don't think you can just parachute one individual in and sort this out. I want to take a small group of people with me who I know very well, I trust implicitly, and we will go and sort the problem out. You know, But I want a five-year contract to do it. It won't happen overnight. And um, the challenge was, number one, look, could you control the expenditure? Because expenditure was literally, they didn't know one one year to the next, how much they were going to spend. Can you get us some results, please? Because we, we haven't got any points. And can you sell the team? Because cigarette advertising is coming to an end, and we might as well get out reasonably uh, when we can, rather than being forced out later on. So those were the priorities and a five-year agreement to do it. And I could had a relatively free hand. And I must admit, they were great people to work with because
1: they just let me get on with it. And a very different experience to Benetton, obviously.
0: It was. It was um, because I, I felt more comfortable about that. I had that first experience. I knew what to expect. I was reporting into a, a, a British board of directors who, you know, Ken Clark, the uh, ex-Chancellor's checker, was on our board. He was chairman of our board, in fact. A great guy to work with. And uh, How had... clued up about Formula One was I, Ken? Was... Very, very switch on. You know, you would find Ken sitting in the grandstand at Silverstone watching a Grand Prix and his, with his son there. And uh, uh, he was, uh, I say clued up, clued up in a, a, as best anyone could be. He was a sort of, you know, had another career because it's, uh, you know, the people who are in the hub of it really sort of live it day in, day out, as you know. How quickly did you start to see change? On the ground? We set about a 90 day program to start with. We came in and said, This is what we're going to achieve. This is how we're going to make decisions after 90 days. We're going to do all this, assess everything quickly. We're not going to muck about. And after 90 days, we'll tell everyone exactly how things are going to change. And I think we did that pretty well. I think we went in, we were fairly clear in our views about what was right, what was wrong, what we needed to do. And as I said, it's, it's not something that changes. You can't just wave a magic wand and create a competitive Formula One team overnight. As we've got so many examples of that even today. And it was quite a—it's uh, quite a tough couple of years, the first couple of years. But the great thing is we had the support of uh, BAT. We had the finance behind us as well from BAT. They—they uh, they didn't skimp on that at all. And it was—it um,
1: was—it was great stuff. It was enjoyable. I look back at the early 2000s and think that was peak Formula One excess in terms of all the tobacco companies. Uh, You had McLaren with three test teams, Ferrari with three test teams. It was just extraordinary time to be in the sport. It was a little
0: excessive, wasn't it? You know, do you remember the, the, the launches today? They just... Pull a blanket off a car and sort of turn up at, the, at Barcelona and say, "Here's our new car." And in those days, we'd have
1: dancing girls, we'd have Eiffel Tower in the background, we'd have everything. It was just extraordinary. Yeah. Now, 2002 was the transition year. It felt, and then 2003 it really started to to bear results, didn't it? And you brought in for two, three, Jensen Button. He just had two difficult seasons. At Benetton slash Renault, why Jensen? What did you see in him? Well, firstly,
0: I always think that um, my my skill set is not technical. It's uh, it's more about setting a culture in the organisation, and um, cultures in organisations don't happen overnight. It's about sort of getting everyone to believe in the same things and and uh, and and sharing that and and having a great belonging within the organisation. The lesson I would learned from. Colin McRae and having Colin win the World Championship in rallying for us was that there was a great um, sense of belonging around a British driver within a team. There's, yeah, there, there are great foreign drivers, of course there are, and they're, you know, and but I noticed very strongly how the team gelled when they, they, they had this lovely empathy with Colin. And I thought we'd actually achieved the same thing with
1: Jensen as well, young British driver. And to be fair, that's, that's what happened in many ways. But what was interesting with that is that the team was partly set up around Jacques Villeneuve. So he, that was wasn't, he wasn't that man. He, what, he wasn't the glue that you needed. No, Jacques is a very complicated individual. I've I've grown to like Jack over
0: the years, actually, and we we chat regularly now when I see him. It was a very fraught relationship at that time, but why? I, why? I think Craig came between us quite frankly. I think Craig wanted to be the influencer with Jack and the and the team and he wouldn't let me get close to Jack and he probably poisoned my relationship with him and, you know, Jack's come and spoken to me subsequent and, but she said that to me. And so I didn't get the best out of Jack and that quite frankly disappointed me because I think we probably could have worked quite well together
1: um, but that wasn't going to be the case. And he left, what? Well, race early didn't he at the end of 2003 (laughs) but why just had to move on too difficult what was the reason it was getting very fraught and you know uh, it was you can't have
0: in any organization let alone a racing team the tail wagging the dog and um, and drivers you know yes they're, they're fated by the fans they're fated by you journalists as well they're the most influential people in any team but they have to be part of the team and they have to play by the team rules and and uh, and
1: engage with the team and if they don't then they have to go well jensen as much as he was that person can i take you back to the german grand prix of 2004 jensen had a difficult qualifying i think he was 13th on the grid charges through the field to second I remember there being celebrations in the pit lane. Um, I think cigars and everything were out. And then news broke the following week that he'd signed for Williams. Was that a bit of a slap in the face? I guess it was. Well, you know, again, I look back on
0: Jensen as a young racing driver. And so often is the case, and he more so than most, I would say, was very badly advised and influenced by management. And he had management around him that were self-interested and they didn't think of him first and nor did they look at the the bigger picture again i see this in so many occasions that uh, drivers who've lost their way or sort of lost big opportunities because they they've trusted management who've not really had their own best interests at heart and had different views of things and uh, you know imagine you're 23 24 years old you know you're put into this world sort of you're a racing driver you're there to drive the motor car as fast as you possibly can you rely on sort of lawyers and managers and people around you to make these big decisions for you but if they're not professional and they're not competent and they don't sort of behave appropriately then you end up in a big mess as we ended up with
1: then Was it delivered to you as a fait accompli or was it we're thinking of Williams no there was no David come on what have you got what can you offer me not at all there was no conversation
0: no correspondence whatsoever but we obviously didn't take that lying down and um, we ended up in the uh, court of arbitration the sort of uh, the um, what's the the contract uh, arbitration court of the F1 and we won the case clearly
1: it's uh, it was completely flawed how did that change your relationship with gents?
0: I guess it did at the time. I, I look back now, and we're you know, we sort of you know, we're quite good pals now when we see each other. But it's obviously these things do temp you slightly. But I blame the management completely, I cut the management off, and sort of he changed
1: managers. Can we d- develop that a little bit more? How you, as the team principal, deal with driver management it strikes me that you're the sort of person that wants to go straight to the driver so when the driver manager tries to get involved what do you do well it's it, it does tend to be a bit of a problem and it's the same i suspect in many walks
0: of life there are similar analogies to this um but in formula one teams and racing teams you do have the managers who have to justify themselves they have to justify a role for themselves and often the best ones and um uh, who's michael's uh willie Weber Weber and people like that they are just nurturing the arrangements along tickling them when it's necessary and sort of holding you to account when you don't deliver on your side of the bug others try and take over the whole relationship some of them it got so bad on one occasion with actually jensen's management i've got so frustrated by these people i couldn't deal with them I thought to myself you know i had a big argument with them and they said well nothing you do about this the contract is very clear uh you have to give us two passes for the motorhome all races we're going to be sitting there in that motorhome every race from now to the end of the season i thought myself, oh God, how am i gonna i couldn't cope with this idea so i luckily i went to see bernie and we took their paddock passes away so they couldn't get to the motorhome <laughs> bernie was a great help in that one
1: yeah and it sounds like you had a great relationship with Bernie because a he put you in contact with the Benetton family and was he helpful throughout the whole BAR? Bernie's you know I don't think
0: anyone should uh claim to honestly be a great friend of Bernie's because you know there would be exceptions to that but Bernie runs a business or ran a business and ran it with his own you know very clear motives at heart and you know he was always very fair with me I would never say a word against him but uh he was always very clear where 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 his interest lay?
1: let's talk about Honda now, because of course we've seen huge development from them in the in recent seasons. They win the world championship last year with uh, with Red Bull and Max Verstappen. What kind of Honda were you dealing with at that time with BAR?
0: It's a very tricky relationship in those days. Um, Honda's um, obviously got an enormous pedigree and track record. But the relationship between an engine manufacturer and the and the team and the chassis manufacturer has got to be as one, and I think quite frankly that's why Mercedes has been so successful. The Bricksworth relationship with the team is look it is just one, and if it doesn't work like that, then you have problems. And I remember Jeff Willis and the team coming to me one day, and I don't know when it was, 2003, 2004, around there. They said to me, look. Um, We've got a bit of a problem here because quite frankly the, the engine is too heavy, it's too thirsty on fuel and we just can't package it in the car properly. And you're gonna to have to go to Japan and sort this out for us. So off I go to Japan again, sit down with the team and they say, Look guys, here's the problem. And they said, Well, hang on a minute. Our priority is to give you a thousand horsepower. The president has set us this challenge to give you 1,000 horsepower, and that we have done. We have 1,000 horsepower to give you for your engine this year. Yes, yeah, but we can't put it in the car. It doesn't fit properly, and it's too heavy, and it drinks fuel. And we've got to work as one. It's a collaborative approach we've got to take to this. And it was... a. Um It was quite fraught, the relationship, uh, if I'm honest with you, at the time. And it was, uh, again, it was uh, two different cultures, that uh, Oriental Japanese culture against our own. And I don't think we managed it as well as we could have done at the time. We probably could have done a lot better.
1: And does it frustrate you that you didn't win a race in 2004? You got, what was it, 11 podiums, uh, 10 for Jensen, one for for Takuma Sato.
0: Yeah, second in the in the manufacturers. It was a frustration. No, it was, you know... I, I guess when you come from nowhere, it's a, seen as a success, but, you know, no one applauds finishing second. And um, I find it, I'm, I never get more upset when I come home after a weekend when we finish second. But, uh, no, th- there were great things to take away from that year. They, the year was, uh, the team really came into their own, the confidence built, and um uh, yeah, I look at that team now, and I see so many faces of Mercedes that were there then, and uh,
1: I'd like to think, in some very small way, that the DNA carried through. I'm sure, it did. I'm sure it did. Does it frustrate you that you didn't get another crack in 2005 to continue um, the work that you'd started?
0: Yeah, the, the Honda
1: came on board, and uh, remember,
0: the the goal was to sell to Honda. Uh, or sell to somebody, Honda were the obvious buyers, they, they found dealing with me quite frustrating, I think. Um, you know, I was quite clear on what I wanted to do and what I think I, I, we needed to do in terms of whether it was the tire change we did that year, whether it was getting rid of Jacques and putting Takuma in. Which, uh, I thought we please them, but never mind. So there were lots of issues that were sort of points of conflict. So I think at the end of the year, one of the great goals for them when they, they bought the team was to get rid of me. So it's
1: uh, – it I and mean, we had two years left on our contract. Well, so that's did, another so point. it worked out getting, quite nicely. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I suppose that gave you perhaps the capacity to start thinking about pro drive yeah. and Formula One. Now, mm. let's talk about that because I think – if my research has been right anyway, that there have been two occasions where you've got close. Yeah, we're very close. Let's talk about the first one.
0: The first one was um, when Max decided that he was going to open up an extra place on the grid for a Formula One team. And um, we put our, our hat in the ring and said, we'd like to do that. And we were, if I remember correctly, almost gifted the opportunity. Now, at the time, the Concorde... Agreement was just changing. It was the end of the Concord Agreement. I think a lot of teams hadn't signed up to the new ones. Some people had uh, had signed a. Uh, An letter of intent with the FIA or maybe even signed a, a sort of it wasn't a formal contract They'd actually signed they would continue on the same basis so, And there was a bit of a divide and rule going on between Bernie and Max and the teams at the time It was a quite a uh, it, it was quite challenging the Concord agreement got delayed And when we Max one of the things Max had done he changed a lot of the the IP in the in the cars themselves To allow you to, I can't remember how it changed, but it came quite dramatically, which I looked at this quite carefully and uh, talked to Martin Whitmarsh at McLaren, and it was very clear to us that we could actually just have a a second team, you know, with a... So in layman's terms, we're just talking customer cars. Well, if they want to describe that, well, here's the story. I went to Bernie and I said, look, Bernie, I've looked at this and I think uh, we can just have a another car he said, well it's a great idea for mclaren because you can just have last year's cars and they'll be happy to get their cars running a bit of income going into them you'll have a good kick out i said that's not the idea bernie i'm gonna i'm gonna run the current car and um they said you what i said well how's that gonna work he said well mclaren can build the cars no problem testing is going to be dramatically limited next year we will do testing Alongside them, so we double the mileage of their testing. We've agreed that we can put young drivers into our cars. Mercedes have accepted that they would supply another team for engines, so we'll just run a sister team. And you know, we can sort of uh, if they've got excess sponsors, which was ironic, which was quite amazingly the thing at the time, and um, and everyone's a winner. And it quietly dawned on everybody around us that this was going on, and the first move was so sort of, well. They will never get the money together to run the thing. And then it's, well, they never get a proper car together. And then, ooh, look what's going on. So then we got Williams, who'd signed a pre-contract for the Concord Agreement for the following year. They'd actually signed, I don't know, they, they'd done a, an exchange of letters or something with Max. And the wording in their agreement was, from Max to them, that the basic terms of the Concord Agreement would remain as they were. And they relied on that to say, you can't change the i p rules around having uh, sort of as you would describe it a customer car.
1: this was for two thousand and eight. so how much work was all this for you? Oh, we'd spend a lot of
0: time doing it. we'd sort of you know ask Martin Whitmarsh, he knows the sort of story from the mcarran side of the fence and so so you got all. Everything was lined Your up You're ducks and they were. And, but there was a deadline. There was a deadline. They had to do the production of the cars by October, if I remember correctly, to get a, you know to have a confirm confirmation by then, and engines and everything. We had to press the button. And then what happened? Then Williams. They served notice of pre-notice to FIA, to Bernie Eccleston, to myself, to McLaren, just saying, if this goes ahead, they will um, basically uh, will be in breach of the Concord Agreement and breach of this and that and the other. And, and everyone quietly backed away. <laughs> Am
1: I right to suggest you were going to do it with 60 people? 60 something? I can't remember the number at the time, but, but not- it, was, it was modest. It was modest. It wasn't probably
0: 60. Probably You know, these things, you always start with 60 and you end up with... 200, don't you?
1: Being impartial now, do you think it was the right decision for the sport not to change the IP rules? I think it would have um, changed
0: the face of things. It would have made it more affordable for people straight away. We wouldn't have sort of gone to where we are today possibly if that's the case. I think you would have had sister teams, you know, feeder teams each of the main teams it would have knocked out some of the people at the back of the grid possibly and that would have been you know, some would think that wasn't really good for the sport it would be far more elitist possibly there's arguments for both sides of it i'd say
1: and had you got as far as thinking about drivers
0: i don't remember if i'm honestly. i'm not trying to be evasive but i honestly i'm not a great one for looking backwards i sort of you know history's history and you know
1: was, i'd rather look at today and what's going to happen next well, week We'll come on to that later, but go on, Dio. I mean, uh, who I can't remember who are the good guys in 2008. Lewis Hamilton, he was driving a McLaren. <laughs> what about it, a pro, uh, no, no. pro driver? It would have been car. lovely,
0: but um, no, it's.
1: Uh, I honestly
0: genuinely okay. can't
1: remember who we were talking to at the time. So that must have been hugely frustrating. And then two years later, I think, for 2010, you tried again, is that right?
0: Yeah, they opened it up formally then, and they said they would accept tenders then for the places, which they were going to issue two grid places, if I remember correctly. So I revisited the Mercedes relationship again, and um, we had uh, lined up and agreed Mercedes uh, engine then everything seemed to be in place for that. Behind the scenes, what was going on was that Max and Bernie were trying to, to sort of break the whole the stranglehold of the manufacturers, and the manufacturer's stranglehold was around engines. So what the uh, intention was then to fund a Cosworth engine to come in to then they could have a customer engine to supply as many customer teams as they wanted so no longer would the manufacturers have a, a grip on the situation. And uh, so it was important to Max and to Bernie that they had at least two new teams that were going to take Cosworth engines at the time. And I would said to, you know, I'd, literally I had a call from, I think I had a call from either Bernie or Max, I can't remember, on the day when the tender was all being finalised, said, you've got to switch to Cosworth, otherwise you're not going to be in. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not. I'm, we've got an arrangement. I'm going to stay with where I am, thank you very much. At that moment, we knew that the, the thing was lost. Oh, how frustrating. Mind you, we probably would have ended up bankrupt two years later because that's what happened to the teams that joined at the time.
1: What about when Honda pulled out at the end of 2008? Did you think of trying to buy what was there and... I spoke to Ross. Sort of do a Ross Braun kind of thing. No, yeah,
0: we had a... Ross and I just had a chat. It never led to anything. We had, you know, I went to see him. uh, I remember going over to see him on one occasion and say, is there anything we can do together? And uh, uh, there didn't appear to be at the time. And so we, um, we never carried on the conversation.
1: And what about now? Is ProDrive F1 something you'd consider now?
0: We'd consider anything now, quite frankly. You know, we always look at things with a, an open mind, uh, but it, it's a different world than, you know, the the old days. If if I turned the clock back sort of 30 years ago, I should have started a Formula One team then. Doing one now, you've got to be a billionaire and sort of uh,
1: prepared to lose half of it to, to get the thing going. Now, for people listening who aren't familiar with ProDrive, just... Give us a little flavour as to the sort of stuff you're doing both in motorsport and outside now.
0: Well, historically, our roots have been in rallying. Um, We've won the World Rally Championship half a dozen times. We've... um, Touring car racing with various manufacturers. We won British title many times. Australian, we've been racing the V8s in Australia. More recently, we've run all of Aston Martin's GT racing for them, and last 18 years now. And uh, so we've had a number of Le Mans victories with the GT and uh, uh, Le Mans championships. We've uh, what else have we done? We've done rallycross. We've done. Uh, Uh, various things and today we've um we still operate uh with aston martin gt so all gt races at either le mans or at um uh, at sebring we've got private teams all around the world that we support and um so that's on the sports car racing side. It's an important part of the business. Uh, we built a Dakar car recently with the Sovereign Wealth Fund in, uh, in Bahrain. So that's to compete on. We finished second with Sebastian Loeb driving The Dakar. dreaded
1: second, David.
0: No, 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 no. That's, that's <laughs> another one. You spend two weeks driving around a desert and you finish second. Imagine how that feels.
1: Oh, the, the pedigree is clearly there, isn't it? Yeah, do, do you do... have the energy for Formula One if uh, the
0: opportunity came? Uh, you know, in, a, in, a certain, in certain roles it could be possible. I've learned to say in life, you never say never. Uh, but, but the direction I'm taking the company now is I feel very, um, I wouldn't say I'm an evangelist, but I feel quite strongly about the role we need to play now in technology and solving some of the environmental issues we face. And so it's no great coincidence that we're running Lewis Hamilton's Extreme E program and the electric uh, cross country. And, and we've been looking at a Formula E team as well. We're looking at hydrogen, for instance, and we're working on a number of road car projects. And we do, At the moment in the workshop, there's a 15-ton electric truck that we're, we're working with somewhere. We did the hybrid transit van for Ford a few years back, uh, the development on that. So we're doing lots of interesting ideas. We worked the Dakar. We ran on a sustainable fuel. We ran on a, a, a Gen 2 biofuel. So, And I think the intellect that we've got in our racing teams, and this goes across Formula 1, and I hope that a lot of the Formula 1 teams who are now cost cap are going to use the resource to to help find their way out of some of the the problems we've created for ourselves over the last few years you know we burnt enough fossil fuels to to sort of to do all sorts of damage and i don't want to, my grandchildren to look back at me and say i didn't return and do something about it
1: i thought you were being associated quite closely with the fia presidency mm. last year you didn't go for it mm. Did you think about it?
0: Yeah, we thought about it a lot. But I'm seventy this year. I'm quite good at delegating. I'm probably just lazy actually. But I sort of I do want to develop next generation. I'm sort of I've always trying to engineer myself out of a job and find people that can do it better for me underneath and and mentor them too to the role. And I felt that it's uh, a younger person's role, um, and so it's. Uh, no, we, we made a conscious decision that
1: I wouldn't sort of stand for it. But you are chairman of Motorsport UK. Mm-hmm. What kind of nick is, is motorsport in the UK in? Um, it's, it's quite difficult
0: to judge after two years of pandemic. I think we've come through the pandemic extremely well. We were sort of one of the sports that got back running again racing again uh, quicker than most unfortunately rallying you can't say that for for rallying where we were restricted in wales and uh, and sort of two car people in a car that created problems for the sort of uh, the legislation on on the covid situation but so that suffered during the period we've got to do a lot of work to get that back up and running again but just generally the license numbers the number of marshals we've got is as strong as it's ever been and uh, Running an organisation, a, a sort of uh, a governing body, historically, it's been, everyone's just regarded as a, a monopoly. You, all you do is you have to go there to get your, your licence and there's, you've got to get a permit if you want to run a race meeting or, or run a rally. And, um, but um, I hope that we, one of the, the key things we've done is to turn this round and realise that these people are our customers. And we have a role to play with our customers, and we need to deliver a service. And uh, we've moved the operation from an uh, industrial slate in Slough, why well, it's you know it was there. Goodness only knows to the new heritage centre in Bicester, great place, and all our members are willing and very welcome to come and visit any time. And. Again, I come back to the culture of the organisation. The whole place has changed to understand that we do have customers out there, we have a job to do, and it's not just about issuing licences and permits. Our role is to promote the sport, and our role is to take the sport into areas where historically hasn't been, to develop the, the grassroots of the sport. And there are, there are obviously things we're not doing right still, not perfectly for sure, but the intent is there, and the drive is there,
1: and we've got the talent of the people there to do it now. Oh, David, this is a conversation that's had in pubs across the world. But given your experiences in rallying and Formula One, you're probably very well positioned to talk about drivers. Rallying versus Formula One. You've had world champions in Colin McRae, Richard Burns, Padre Solberg. Jensen's gone on to win the world title in Formula One, of course. Jack Villeneuve, of world title. Who is the best driver that has been on your books? Well, it's interesting
0: often ask that question. I always say that if you want to be a great driver, there are three attributes you, you really need to be a great driver. You've got to have an innate skill, that's number one. You've got to have a work ethic, that's number two. And you've got to be a team player. You've got to pull the team around you. And there are very few drivers, if you mark each of those skill sets, one to 10, very few drivers get a 30. You know, I remember Michael Schumacher. I would have given him a thirty. I watched him in that team, and he had the, uh, you know, he had a great team of people around him. But he ticked all those boxes. And I've watched, and you compensate one for the other. You know, Colin McRae, who was a great skill set, enormous team player, got the team really around him. But you know, he didn't want to do the testing, quite frankly, and he left that to Carlos Saints And Carlos Sainz was had enormous work ethic and sort of. Good skills, but couldn't get the team working around him very well. So, it, all these things play and sort of, and, you know, uh, I've, funny enough, I'm working with Sebastian Loeb now, nine times world rally champion. He's driven for us now for the last uh, 18 months in Dakar. Now, working with him, well, we've been working with him, Extreme E, with Lewis's team, and. It's taken us a year to embrace him in the team. I've just watched the person change during that period of time, as he's sort of been remote and he's come into the team. And as he's come into the team, closer to us, he's become better and better. And, and the team's also rallied around him as well. So it's it's a it's a changing dynamic. So you know, I can do the marks out of thirty for each of the drivers I want, if you want. But I don't think that'll be a, that'll be a long task.
1: Pro drive F one. Yeah. Who would you hire of the people that you've worked with so far? in your career well you know it's a different era now so you know you,
0: i'm looking at the, the guys on the grid now I, you know i'd love to have that mercedes lineup of lewis and george i think that is just phenomenal but then look at the ferrari lineup of uh, of charles and, and carlos jr if you want me to name any one driver i've worked with uh, of late i never fail to get impressed by sebastian loeb he came to us as, he's 47 years old. He's won nine world championships. He gets into our car in Dakar. He drives around the whole of Dakar for two weeks and finishes, you know, that dreaded second. And then he gets out of that, goes to Monte Carlo, wins Monte Carlo, gets out of that, then goes to the race of champions in Sweden and wins that as well.
1: You know, that is something, a good ex- month, something
0: extraordinary.
1: <laughs> and actually, he tested the Toro Rosso back in the day and really impressed the team. He at Le Mans, I think as he
0: he did very well at Le Mans as well. Yeah. So he's an extraordinary talent. But these drivers are you you measure the difference in minutiae now at the front of the grid, don't you?
1: I did also want to ask you about some of the team principles in in Formula One now because you've worked with so many of them. I guess Lawrence Stroll through the Aston Martin program is-
0: i haven't had much dealings with lawrence i've known lawrence from old days when he was always at often at grand prix and um you know I've talked to him but i i don't know lawrence particularly well okay but christian horner yeah i know christian very well in fact, christian christian came i remember his father telling me but it was a long time ago now was it 25 years ago his father gary came to me and said look um, christian was in formula 3000 i think it was at the time and to." He was a very competent driver, but he was obviously not going to move on to the Formula One or anything. And Gary's saying, what can we do? And we end up setting up a team together. And we had a, a team together with a Russian sponsor, if I remember correctly, Luke Oil at the time. And Christian was the team manager then. And we were the partners in the team. And that's, I guess, yeah, another place where it all began. Crikey.
1: So Arden was a, a joint venture yes. between yourselves and, and, Arden, and, yeah. and the Hornets. Mm. Crikey, well, he's... He hasn't stopped. He hasn't stood still, has he? No. And what did you make of Christian and Toto last year? It all got quite excitable between the two of them, didn't it? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, you know, that was,
0: I think it was one of the biggest uh, uh, climaxes to a season I can ever remember. And the attention in the team must have been extraordinary between the two sides. And, um... I always used to say to people and they, you know, tell me what it's like in, in Formula One, you know, a season of Formula One. And I likened it to back in the medieval times in the Crusades. I said, well, you you get on your horse in January and you march off and off you go to the other side of the world and, and you, you come back in December and, and that's it. That's it. And you don't speak to anyone in between. You're just working flat out all the time. And the intensity of uh, the the, the pressure on the individuals and the people in those teams, especially now with so many races, is just, I honestly don't think people could ever, can ever comprehend it. If you're in a normal, normal job, you just cannot imagine what's going on in the pressure of a Formula One team.
1: Well, DR, there's no sign of you slowing down. Nope, that's for sure. And I really hope we see pro Drive in Formula One <laughs> at some point. Thank you so much for your time. David has only one pace, and that's flat out. He's one of the busiest people I know, yet he always manages to find time for you in his schedule. He's also one of the most rational people in motorsport and always has one eye on the big picture, which is why he's such a suitable chair of Motorsport UK. David, thanks for your time. I really enjoyed reliving the Benetton and BAR days. Now, as ever, please send in your thoughts and stories about David, be they about Formula One or rallying. Send them to me at tomclarksonf one or use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid, and I'll read out a handful at the end of next week's show. Which, of course, brings me on to what you sent in about George Russell after last week. There's a lot of love out there for George. Uh, Let's start with this from Katarzyna Rechner. As for what George stands for, one phrase of his that has struck me is his focus on becoming the best version of himself and on learning from everything. It's a powerful message that can resonate universally as it does with me. Thanks for the great conversation. Well, George is certainly managing to be the best version of himself, isn't he? And thanks for the note, Katarizna. Great to hear from you. Next, let's hear this from Neville Taylor. A great listen to a future world champion, he says. What a remarkable guy George is. Humble, honest, down to earth, and fiercely competitive. What a great future this guy has. Well, it's hard to disagree with anything you say there, Neville. George is remarkably normal and an engaging character. A star in the making. No doubt about that. And what about this from my chum, Greg Rust, in New Zealand? Just listen to George Russell on Beyond the Grid. Brilliant. Young racers should give it a listen, a really engaging and insightful conversation and love the tennis parallel too. Thanks, lads. Well, thanks to you, Rusty. It's great to hear from you. And the tennis parallel was indeed a good one, although George admitted he's more of a badminton man, didn't he? Well, let's leave it there for messages for this week. But thank you so much to everyone who wrote in. I love receiving everything you write and I read it all. Now, if you've enjoyed hearing from David, please check out our huge back catalog of interviews which includes many of the people we've talked about here, Jensen Button, Flavio Briatore, Jacques Villeneuve, and many more. And for the fastest way to get our new episodes every Wednesday, please follow the podcast and leave us a rating or a review. We love reading those as well. Thanks for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula 1 and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.